Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. So we're nearing the end of Esther. We are in Esther chapter 8. If you are joining us for the first time tonight, welcome. I think there was a couple people that stood up. We've been making our way through Esther. And, and we've, we've seen a lot. A lot has happened as we opened Esther several weeks ago. We were placed smack in the height of the Persian Empire, ruled by the pagan king, Ahasuerus, or otherwise known as King Xerxes. In chapter 1, we, we witness Xerxes' splendor, his pomp, his pride. He throws this rager of a party, gets slammed drunk, him and all his buddies, and in doing so, he demands that his queen, Queen Vashti, appear before him. And we find out that the height of the Persian Empire really can come to a crumbling halt with just one small queen saying no. As the Lord would have it, Vashti was removed from a royal position. And it came in the Lord's providence to the young Jewish woman, Esther. Esther, raised and trained by her faithful uncle Mordecai, shows herself to be faithful. We saw that last week. As she defends and goes and pleads for her people because Haman, the wicked Haman, wants them all to die. The Jews are to be annihilated. He hates the Jews. And Esther, being bold, being faithful, meek, stands up for her people and ultimately stands up for Yahweh. We see this last week, and we're going to see this this week. Tonight in Esther chapter 8, it would seem that at this point in the story, that the threat is removed. That the quote-unquote good guys, if you will, emphasis on quotes, Air quotes, have won. It would seem as if they had won. Haman, as we heard last week, the enemy of the Jews is dead. He has been hung. The one who schemed for the destruction of all the Jews no longer draws breath due to the faithful and courageous efforts of Mordecai and Esther. But the story is not done yet. It's not. How many of us have seen in this room, how many of us have seen Lord of the Rings, specifically the return of the king? More of us should be raising our hand, but those who have, keep them up. 
How many of you have seen the extended edition? The only edition to watch. If you've never seen, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, but you haven't seen the extended edition, I dare say maybe you haven't even seen Lord of the Rings yet. Extended edition is the way to go. The reason I ask is because the movie is famous for having, in the last hour, several endings. Basically, several times when you think to yourself, well, maybe the movie could end right here. And you know what? I would be okay with that. But the movie continues and continues and continues. And I'm not complaining. I love the movie. It just seems like there's several points in which it could end. That's where we were last week with chapter 7. It seems maybe at the end of chapter 7, Haman is dead, that that could be the end of Esther. But, as it is with the Lord of the Rings. The battle of Minas Tirith may be over, but the ring is yet to be destroyed. So tonight, we are going to see Esther save, the, well, not Esther save the Jews. Let me rephrase that. Yahweh save the Jews through the faithfulness of his people. Because the threat of annihilation is still alive and well. The enemy who plotted it is dead, but his evil edict still looms over them. So tonight we're going to see four different scenes. The reward of the faithful provided, verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 to 8, the threat of annihilation removed. Verses 9 to 14, the hope of salvation sealed. And the last two verses, 15 to 17, three verses, the joy of the saved resounds. Chapter 8, verse 1, the reward of the faithful provided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Again, he was the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Esther has now made aware that Mordecai is no random person. He is indeed her uncle, the one who raised her. Verse 2, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, And gave it to Mordecai, and Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. First three words there, on that day. On what day? Well, on the very day Haman was hung. Verse 10 of chapter 7 says, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Verse 8 of chapter 8, verse 1, on that day, that very same day. The kings had a long day. It started way back in chapter 6, verse 1, when the king had a sleepless night. The guy is tired. The guy is exhausted. No doubt doesn't have the greatest desire to rule a nation right now. But he still does. And he is wasting no time in handing out rewards. Specifically to Esther and her newly discovered uncle, The very same day Haman is executed, the king is looking to 
give back and reward the Jewish people. He gives to Esther the riches of Haman, the house of Haman, everything Haman owned. A couple chapters ago, Haman spends like several verses bragging about everything he owned. And now that guy's dead and it's all handed to Esther, the queen. Second, the king gives to Mordecai the signet ring that was once worn by his enemy. The king's not wasting time here. While the body of Haman was probably still warm, he's doing this. The very ring that was used to feel the, seal the fate of the Jews is the very same ring that is rewarded to a Jew. And more than that, the very same ring that's going to seal their salvation. A couple of chapters ago, Mordecai was weeping and mourning and tearing his clothes unable to come before the king and make his plea because of how distraught he is over the edict that Haman sent out. But now, here he is standing before the king, not on his hands and knees weeping, bearing the king's signet ring and possessor of his enemy's wealth. This reversal, while it certainly makes a good story, is nothing short of an act of divine providence. Listen, God rewards faithfulness. God rewards Faithfulness, Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith believes that God rewards that those who walk uprightly by the grace of God alone reap a reward. By the way, the adverse adverse stands true as well, right? God punishes faithlessness. Those who walk in disobedience will incur God's right judgment. Proverbs eleven eight: To the wicked earn deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Or for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now. When I say God rewards faithfulness, I want to be clear. I want to be clear what it does mean and what it does not mean. Because I think that deserves a little explanation. It means that when we walk faithfully, as we see Esther doing, we will ultimately be blessed as we will experience the joy of the Lord. Which is far better than any earthly reward. God knows what is best. He prescribes it in his word. It's not there to hinder us. It's for our good. Our reward is joy and satisfaction in him. That's our ultimate reward. But it does not mean, God rewarding faithfulness, it does not mean everything is going to turn out like it did for Esther and Mordecai. We need to come to grips with that. Very literally, both Esther and Mordecai got health and wealth. 
We need to be clear about that. They're alive. They're not dead. And they just got all the wealth of their enemy. But it does not always turn out like that. Very rarely does it turn out like that for the Christian. Our, again, our reward is joy and satisfaction in the Lord. Walking according to the word of God, submitting to him, does not guarantee earthly blessing. And to teach such would be prosperity gospel. A heretical teaching that says follow manipulates people into getting the people to follow Christ for what he can give you rather than who he is and what he has done and simply because he is worthy of our worship. In fact, if you think about it, the scripture is riddled with verses that tell us quite the opposite, that those who live godly lives, specifically 2 Timothy 3.12, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God may give us health, and we praise him for it. In fact, every moment we draw breath, we praise him. God may be, make us stewards of what is his wealth. But ultimately, our true reward is Christ. It's a life with him eternally. Finally conformed his image in glory for his glory. So that whether it is in trial or in, in the path of blessing, blessed be the name of the Lord. Point two, the threat of annihilation removed. Verse three, then Esther spoke again to the king. It's not there. Faith, faith often begins very small. Faith often begins very small. It's like a, a tiny match in a vast pitch dark cavern and that's not wrong that's not bad small faith is not inherently wrong if you are here this evening believing that your your faith is small that God is somehow ashamed of you because you are barely holding on Dear friend, I, I encourage you not to listen to the lies of the enemy. Be encouraged that God blesses and loves even the smallest amount of faith. For even the smallest amount, even the smallest ounce of faith is a gift from him. Now, don't get me wrong. We want faith that grows. We don't want to stay people of little faith. But remember that God is the one that gifts faith. Even the smallest amount is from him, and we praise him for it. I remember in college, uh, my professor, I, w I went to the master's university, and a professor of mine told me um, a story, or told the class a story of a, of a student that came to him, concerned about his salvation because he didn't love God as much as he should. His faith wasn't as strong as it should be. And my professor asked this student, we'll call him <clears throat> Jack. 
Jack, do you love God as much as he's worthy of being loved? And the student said, not at all. Are you kidding me? Far from it. So he, my professor went down a notch. He said, do you love God a lot? And the student said, ashamedly, I, I don't even know if I could say I love him a lot. I want to love him a lot. The professor said to him, Jack, do you love God a little? And, and the student said, yeah. I love him and I want to serve him more. I believe who he is and I love him. I, I believe that he loves me. And, and the professor said, and, and, and the point of the story there, you, you guys, is this. God blesses the smallest faith. God blesses the smallest faith. Listen, God will not quench the smoldering wick of faith. If you want a good book to read, and it's short, you need to read The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. It is a wonderful little book. Uh, Richard Sibbs, the Puritan. God will not quench that smoldering wick of faith. He, he will not roll his eyes and say, Enough! to the one who is showing the tiniest inkling of faith. He is so patient with us. He blesses such faith so that it grows. He blesses faith so that it grows. And that's what we see here right now. That's why I took so much time on this little verse. Because we see Esther's bold faith as annihilation goes from looming over their heads to gone. This is the second time Esther has come and made a request of the king. The first occasion, <clears throat> Mordecai had to spend an entire chapter, chapter 4, to warn her of the deadly ramifications if she does not go. He had to exhort her. You need to go, Esther. You need to go for your people. And this is when Esther says that wonderful statement, I will go to the king and what? If I perish, I perish. Now, with emboldened faith, she does not need coaxing. She does not re need rebuke. She does not need exhortation. Verse 3 simply states, Esther spoke to the king, again to the king. The Lord has grown her faith. She acted in faith by going the first time trusting in Yahweh, trusting in who he is, and now she's confident again to do so. And that's how faith works, friends. That's how faith works. We act out in faith once, trusting in the Lord's promise to be with us, and it encourages us to continue in faith. Faith strengthens faith. Faith strengthens faith. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating for, for some kind of blind, knowledge, knowledgeless faith where we walk off a cliff and say, well, God's going to catch me. No, we want knowledge-filled faith as Christians. The faith that is strengthened and founded on the word of God that says, this is who God says he is. And so I will go forth. 
We step out in faith because of, of, of verses like Joshua 1.9 that says, Have I not commanded you, God speaking to Joshua, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. God, I wonder if Esther had that verse in her mind as she went to the king a second time. That's why we act in faith, because of what Yahweh has promised us in his word. Faith is always built on what God has spoken. So Esther makes a request. She says here, verse 3, She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes. That's a mouthful. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king, sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. The cards are all on the table. Haman's plot is exposed. He is dead. Esther has shown herself to be a Jew, as does Mordecai. But the dark shadow of annihilation looms. The edict remains. And so Esther, I love this. No no doubt. By the way, no doubt in her royal robes and her beautified person, disregarding, by the way, that Ahasuerus, Xerxes, does not approve of sorrow in his palace. She does three things that convey sorrow and desperation. She falls at his feet. She weeps and she begs for her people. See, in her first meeting with the king, she stood and spoke to him. But now she's at his feet and weeping. In her first meeting, she waited for that golden scepter to speak, but this time she doesn't wait. It's too urgent. The situation is dire. She's desperate. Once acting as a royal dignity, she's really now acting as a common beggar. At this moment, and honestly, at this moment, I believe we see such a, a godly characteristic in Esther. Because you see, her enemy and, and the wicked plot he devised indeed brought her into the courts of the king the first time. Courageously. But it's the impending doom of her people that brings her into the courts of the king a second time, disregarding the court etiquette. You see, She's falling at his feet, weeping and speaking out of turn. Honestly, she herself 
could be hung on the gallows for these actions. But why? Why such desperation? Because she comes to the throne room of the king on behalf of her people. She, she indeed hated her enemy. But oh, how she loves her people. Love for her people drives her to such desperation, drives her to such boldness. And, and honestly, as I was reading this this week, I, I was convicted. I said, I wonder, I wonder if I, with, with equal desperation would approach my father's throne on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ to the God who indeed hears our prayer, who is much, much better than King Ahasuerus. Esther loves her people. With eyes swelled with tears, Esther does not prove to be foolish or reckless in her request. She can't be. The fate of her people hang in the balance. So what does she do? She appeals to the king's ego. We see statements in verse 5. If it pleased the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, if I am pleasing in his eyes, all these are about the king. If it pleases the king, one author notes that in a world where justice and injustice mean very little, Esther has to appeal to what pleases the king. She's not patronizing him. She's simply being shrewd. See, even when justice is clearly on her side, she doesn't jump the gun and demand justice. She's wise. She's wise. A fool demands what is theirs. But a wise person will be patient, even when they are in the right. I think that's when it gets hard. You know what I mean? Even when you're in the right, the wise person will be patient. Esther still respects the king and submits to him. I mean, these godly characteristics in Esther, I'm blown away. Her faith, her courage, her love for her people, her wisdom in talking to the king, her patience with the king, her submission to the king, her self-control and not blurting out, I want justice. These are the fruits of the spirit. The request is finally made. King, I beg you, in short, I beg you, revoke Haman's edict. Take it back, even though Esther has been given a wealthy reward, and and Ahasuerus makes you realize that. Verse 7, he says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Behold, I've given you the house of Haman. Uh, Esther, I've given you a lot of stuff. What more do you want? But the thing is, earthly riches aren't going to satisfy Esther's soul, but only the salvation of her people. Only the salvation of her people. Well, the Hank King, the king can't do anything about the edict. I mean, remember, they're, they're in a country, they're in a, a nation where, where it's just so bound up in laws. You know what I mean? Have you guys ever, at Christmas time, pulled out the Christmas lights and they're in a giant knot? Come on. Anybody? I'm the only one. Thank you, Gordon. Okay. When I was younger, I enjoyed setting up Christmas lights. Now it's just difficult. Um, and expensive. 
Um, but I remember I, I wasn't good at putting them away the year before. And you bring out the Christmas lights and they're just in a big knotted mess. And you're like, I don't, I don't feel like doing this. Um, should have put them right back right the year before, but I didn't. Anyways, that's like, that's like the laws in this kingdom, right? You just start pulling and it's just a mess. And that's the picture here. The laws are so bound up. The king's like, I can't do anything. I want to help, but I can't, even though I'm the king. But I can make another edict. That's what he says. That's going to solve the problem. And it ultimately does. In the Lord's providence, that's what happens. There is something he can do. He can make another edict. And, and even out of the mouth of an ungodly ruler, we see this divine providence. Again, we've mentioned this verse before. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. God's still on the throne. Ahasuerus says, go write a new edict. Nothing, nothing is off limits, Mordecai, for your people. At the start of the chapter, the threat of annihilation loomed over them like a dark shadow, but, and, and it drove Esther to disregard the, the, the dignified court etiquette. And, and now she, she begs for her, people, her people's lives, but now all of a sudden, light dawns. The threat is removed. There is hope. Verses 9 to 14, the hope of salvation sealed. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were bred, used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used to the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. The scribes were summoned that very day, that very moment. We really, we just, we don't have the time to dissect all of the, all of the, the, the fascinating things in this edict, but, but I just want to point out a couple things. One, Haman's and Mordecai's edict is almost the exact same. Almost identical, but for a few things. One thing that is different is 
unlike Haman's edict, Mordecai's was to be sent out on swift horses. And we see this term come up twice. The point is, speed is everything. The king has mercy on the Jews. He wants them to be saved. So he gets the fastest horses and they go out. Another, another difference is, is that Haman's edict was genocidal act toward all the Jews. There's no distinction. Whereas Mordecai's was a response of defense only to those who would attack them. That becomes important in a, in a few moments. But lastly, while Haman's edict brought confusion and mourning to the people, Mordecai's brings joy and feasting. We see that in verse 17. See, you guys, Mordecai and Esther, the thing is, they can devise plans of deliverance all day long, but it will amount to nothing if it does not please the king. Again, remember, nothing apart, nothing that does not please the king does not happen in this kingdom. But sure enough, as the Lord would have it, Mordecai is in possession of that signet ring. And all he has to do is stamp his hand down on that hot wax and he will seal the salvation of the Jews. The action that sealed their deadly fate is the same one that's going to seal their salvation. Any reader of the text, though, should notice something here. I think we, I want to address Haman's edict and Mordecai's edict, as I said, are very similar. We just spent several chapters building up and lamenting the annihilation of the Jews through the evil edict of Haman. But now Israel is given permission by Mordecai to, quote, destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force, including women and children, and to plunder their goods. So is that right? Is that just? Is it right for us to lament it when Haman does it, but praise it with a sigh of relief when Mordecai commands it? In short, yes. But let's explain. Haman's edict, as I said a moment ago, was genocidal. He, he hated the Jews. He wanted them exterminated. There was no distinction, no mercy, no hesitation. He was going to kill all the Jews. That was his goal. In fact, he could not rest until it was done. Mordecai's edict, on the other hand, can be understood as an act of holy war. In other words... They were acting on Yahweh's behalf as his hand of judgment on wickedness. Now, please hear me. It's not as if Israel was inherently more righteous than their enemies. Not at all. Rather, it was because of the wickedness of their enemies. Israel was acting as God's hand of judgment in this, in this situation toward those who sought to kill the people who represented him. Deuteronomy 9.5. God, speaking to Israel, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word of the Lord the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
God is punishing wickedness so that he might be faithful to his word. Ultimately, that he might preserve his people. That's the difference between Haman's and Mordecai's edict. One is purely genocidal hatred, while the other is acting as the holy arm of the Lord towards the wickedness of man in defense of his great name. But another thing to consider here is how God never acts in judgment without offering mercy. In other words, God's judgment can be escaped. Humble yourself in faith to him. All over the Bible we see this. These these annihilation events, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jericho, when the walls fall down. God saves Noah. God rescues Lot. God preserves Rahab. These all had faith. Even here in Esther, we see this truth. Mordecai's edict is annihilation. But you know how you don't get annihilated? Don't attack Israel. And you're in the clear. Mercy. The reality is, friends, you and I naturally and rightfully deserve to be annihilated for our sin against this holy God. The Bible is clear. We are born as God's enemies. And for that reason, his perfect judgment towards us is at hand. Everyone, I want you to listen to this. Let the word of God talk to you right now. Psalm seven twelve. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. The picture couldn't be more vivid. God's righteous sword of judgment is out of its sheath. The, 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 his arm has pulled back the bowstring and the arrow is aimed at you. The sword will come swinging. The arrow will fly. Sin and sinners must be punished for the sake of his holy name. If you are in this room tonight and you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, listen, please. You can disregard everything else I've said tonight, but listen to this. The sword of judgment is for you. The arrow of judgment is for you. And they can't be stopped. But, You can take refuge from them. You can take refuge from them. We must humble ourselves before God. The passage says, listen, if a man does not repent, meaning if we do, there is hope. I wish I could come up with a better word there because we overuse hope, but hope and what it truly means We take refuge in Christ who indeed 
took the blow of that righteous sword, who indeed took who was indeed pierced with that arrow of judgment for you. You see, it's, it's not as if our salvation comes to us. And those who are saved, listen, it's not as if a salvation comes to us because God merely overlooks sin. God doesn't overlook sin. Our salvation comes because he puts our sin on another person and kills them in our place. Christ experienced really this true holy war. God's ultimate righteous act of judgment towards sin, by the way, by the hand of sinners. Christ is our substitute. Christ knew no sin. And yet he became sin for you and me, for those who would have faith in him. We don't know any righteousness. We're the righteousness of God in Christ. Guys, not only that, but as I couldn't help but see this as Mordecai seals the salvation of Israel with that signet ring. So God seals his children by his Holy Spirit. We are promised eternal life. We are guaranteed our inheritance because of the spirit. And so as we come to a close and uh, how do we respond? How do you respond to such a marvelous salvation to such an amazing substitute? How can we respond? How do the saved respond? Our last point, the joy of the saved resounds. Verses 15 and 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. Again, not long ago, he was mourning in sackcloth and ashes. With a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and the edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Where's your joy found? You see, the doom that Haman's edict Caused brought weeping. But Mordecai's brings the exact opposite. Light, gladness, joy, honor. The edict wasn't even technically enacted yet. It's going to come later on in the year. But the people are shouting and rejoicing as if it's already happened because they trust in the Lord. He's going to preserve them. The people are witnessing God's faithfulness to his covenant, even though they're in a faraway land. So I ask you, where is your joy found? Here's a question about this in small group tonight. Answer honestly with your small group, not not just the answer they want to hear. Answer honestly. Where is your joy found? The Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because of, God, of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. We, we just talked about it. 
Listen, as irrevocable as Mordecai's edict was, our king's command is infinitely more irrevocable. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I could, I'd read all of Romans 8 tonight. Friend, you are utterly sinful and totally depraved. There is no question, and myself included. But Christ has more grace than him than you have sin in you. God, listen, really, really does love you. I'll say that again. God really, really does love you. I don't think we hear that enough or I think we hear it wrongly sometimes. Because if we could just get that through our pridefulness sometimes, man, because some of us hear that and you say, well, Chad, I, God really, you tell me God really, really loves me, but you don't know what I've done, right? You don't know the life I've lived up to this point. You don't know the things I've done, thought, said, whatever. One hour before I came here tonight. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinning, while we were his enemies, while we were speeding in his face, Christ died for us. Man, please hear me. If, if you're convicted for sin, that's not wrong. It's not wrong. And that's not what I'm getting at. But, but, Christian, dear Christian, find joy in knowing that there is nothing you can or need to do to make God love you more. Than he does right now, right this very moment. Let the kindness of the Lord lead you to repentance. Let the truth that God loves you, not because of you, but despite you, encourage you. It's not based off of what we've done. Find joy in that. Find joy knowing that much like the Jews in Esther's day, even though our final deliverance hasn't come, we know and can celebrate the ultimate victory of Christ and that we are sealed for glory with him. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.